back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It was a narrow vote, but an FDA panel recently rejected approval of a drug that many hope could help those who've been diagnosed with ALS. Joining us today to talk about that setback is HPR General Manager Jose Fajardo, who is living with ALS. Mm-hmm. How are Good you? Good morning, Catherine. I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, since last time um, we visited, I've had some uh, additional progression uh, with my diagnosis. Uh, some in my legs, uh, mostly in my arms. My left arm is, uh, while I can move it, is mostly useless. I'm un- unable to really use my left arm for anything, and my right arm is getting weaker. Uh, I'm still able to pick up things, uh, but as my thumb gets weaker, it gets more and more difficult. Uh, I'm now at the point where uh, my wife, Jennifer, uh, has to help me you know, dress every morning, get undressed, get in bed, get in the shower, um, so really more dependent on uh, on Jennifer, who's been uh, uh, my angel, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> yes. uh, during, during all of this. Well, you know, I, I know a lot of folks, you know, probably don't know much about ALS unless no. you've got high-profile mm-hmm. people like me with Peggy Chun, you mm-hmm. know, yourself, who can kind of share the story of yeah. what it's like. And that's know? why I'm here, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, it is a very rare disease, one that's often misdiagnosed. Sometimes it takes a year or two before... Uh, the person with ALS is actually diagnosed with I- ALS. Um, it took, uh, you know, I was misdiagnosed at first. Uh, it was uh, the doctor thought I just had paraparesis. Um, and it was another six months later that another test uh, found that I had ALS um, or the beginnings of ALS that was eventually confirmed almost a year ago today. Um, but it's it's difficult because it, it is a fatal disease. There's no there's no easy way to put that. Mm-hmm. There's no sugarcoating that. Uh, most folks have a survival rate of about three to five years after first diagnosis. Some live a lot longer, um, and I hope to be in that category. Uh, and 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 it's also difficult because every person the way they uh, their body progresses is completely different. Some folks it starts with their bulbar area, which is the mouth, the tongue. They lose the ability to swallow and to speak. Uh, some people, as I did, uh, it begins with the lower limbs or the upper limbs. For me, it started with the lower limbs, uh, and it's progressed more aggressively in the upper limbs. But my mouth is still fine, as you know. <laughs> yes. As you know, during our fun drive, I was on the air raising money, and uh, my swallowing is still good. My breathing capacity is almost at 100% still. So that area, I'm, I'm doing well. It's just the mechanics of moving around that's more difficult. Well, I just know, you know, in in the news with the headlines yeah. with this uh, setback on, on the approval of this drug, because there, there, there's really not a lot as far as treatments that are out there. Right. And the, the uh, treatment that they um, initially have, you know, um, Rejected. I mean, you weren't on that. No, no, Amalex. No, it's one that has been uh, folks. The ALS community has been trying to get the FDA to approve it. Uh, the vote was closer than it was last time, so that's that's progress. Um, and and the reason that they have not approved the drug is the the sample size of the trial, in their view, was just too small. But the trial did find that um, it did, 25% of the folks involved in the trial ha- had a slowing down of the progression of the disease. And, and for us, that's really the most important thing is slowing down the progression. We know that we're probably not close to stopping the progression or reversing the progression. It's all about adding additional months or years of quality of life. Uh, and for you know people who have ALS, again, the, the, the diagnosis is you have ALS, you're going to have three to five years to live. So what we tell the FDA is um, we'll take the risk. <laughs> you know, the, the drug has proven not to be uh, risky. Um, and if you're just saying that there's not enough evidence that it's effective, let us take that risk. Uh, and the ALS community, we're we're able and willing to take that risk because what else? What's the other alternative, right? right? Uh, and the other position is, it, had this been a treatment for cancer with the numbers that were presented, it would have been approved. 
uh, and if it would have been approved for a cancer drug, why can't we approve it for ALS? And they'll take it up, I think, uh, Again. later this summer. Yes, um, right. But now you were uh, on some trials. Yep. Uh, so where are you at with that? Yeah, I was on the Healy platform trial where they were testing four separate drugs. I was on Regimen A, which was a daily shot in my belly. <laughs> Lots of fun. Uh, and I was just towards the end of the six-month trial period when I received a call about two or three weeks before my six months ended uh, where they had enough data to indicate that the drug was not working for ALS patients. So they suspended that regimen. So I'm off that regimen. Uh, went for my last appointment just a few weeks ago at, in Dallas. But that, that opens the door then for me to able to participate in what's known as an early access protocol, which allows me, if I qualify, uh, to receive the active drug of one of the other drugs that's being uh, tested during the trial. So I'm actually going to be part of an interview uh, next week uh, with doctors um, with the Healy Platform trial folks to see if I can qualify to get early access to one of the other drugs. And then, um, you know, we're looking at other, other options as well. Um, I was able to be an early participant in this program called Synaptocure, which uh, uh, I was part of the beta testing. What what they're doing is collecting data, uh, DNA samples from ALS patients because they want to be able to collect all this DNA chromosome analysis to do biomarkers to see, A, do I have a, mute, a mutation that can be passed along to my children and grandchildren? And I don't. Uh, but that way, as they start to develop additional drugs that can pinpoint someone with ALS with a certain biomarker that at least I'm in the data system, that then they could say, all right, Jose, you qualify for this drug because we, you, you match it with your chromo chromosomes. Um, and then with that program, we were also then uh, connected with another neurologist, Dr. Bedlack out of Duke University, who's one of the rock star ALS neurologists. Um, and we're going to be able to go see him in person in middle August uh, to kind of look at um, he's more into non-traditional approaches to ALS. Um, so we hope that that will be, you know, another way for us to find treatments that might be helpful. So you are zigzagging across the country, <laughs> uh, you know, for your treatments, but you're yeah. still actively involved in promoting yeah. uh, uh public radio and you are in line to get a big award this weekend <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was surprised a few weeks ago with a public radio super regional conference which is being held in denver uh, this coming uh, uh monday tuesday wednesday and i was nominated and unanimously selected to win what they call the pro award p-r-r-o the public radio regional organization award which they've been given out for the last 35 years and and the list of names is their iconic names in public radio uh, and I'm just honored that uh, my uh, contribution to public radio is being recognized and that HPR will be recognized at the same time for the work that we're doing. Well, you know, you certainly have uh, uh, done a tremendous job of, you know, strengthening our newsroom. Uh, yeah. You know, since, you know, I was hired here and I've seen the changes just in the, the, the four years that I've been here. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're making our, our, our mark and, and stronger signal across the state. And right. It's just so nice to hear listeners who really appreciate. Well, you know, I still here. love what I you know, I still love what I do. And, and as long as I'm able to still function, um, I, I'm still going to come to work and, and do what I love to do, which is to lead um, this great staff of Hawaii Public Radio. Yeah. And I know, you know, you, you're. Uh, an active general manager, you're out running and playing yeah. soccer, and I don't know. I miss that. I yeah. miss I miss the running. I miss my Orange Theory uh, <laughs> yeah. fitness friends. I love you know. I used to love running the trails in Hawaii, so that's one of the big things that I miss definitely. Yeah. Well, we uh, you're very brave, uh, <laughs> Mr. Pardo. I I'm in denial uh, because it it is it's a it's a tough story to have to tell. But uh, I appreciate you sharing your experience because, happy like to I do said, so. yeah. we we don't know unless there are people out there who are willing to share the experience. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you, Catherine, All for right. inviting me back on. All right. Well, thank you so much. If you've just tuned in, we have been talking with HPR General Manager Jose Fajardo about living with ALS. He'll be traveling to California this weekend to receive, uh, or Colorado rather, uh, to receive the Public Radio Regional Organization Award for his contribution for advancing the growth of public media across the country. The organization represents more than 60 stations across uh, the, sta uh, the, the U.S. and has been in existence uh, for more than 60 years. Mahalo Jose Fajardo for elevating public radio in our island state. 
support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Don Miguel Ruiz is a most beloved spiritual teacher. Next time on New Dimensions, he'll be talking about his spiritual journey while spending nine weeks in a coma following a heart attack. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We talked to the director of a documentary about Chinese communities living in the Jim Crow South later in the show. So we're putting the spotlight on a little bit of Chinese history in Hawaii for today's Backyard Quiz. Hawaii's oldest and largest Chinese language school opened in 1911 near downtown Honolulu with the mission of perpetuating the language, culture, and heritage. While it was originally focused on teaching Cantonese, the school changed its focus years ago to teaching Mandarin, simplified Chinese characters, and a phonetic system called pinyin, which is used for transcribing Mandarin pronunciations. For today's quiz, we want you to tell us the name of the school. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NairitHawaii.com. Civil Beats Reality Check today is with government reporter Blaze Level. He's got a couple of stories online today, the first being the state budget as we get into the final weeks of this legislative session. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. So, yeah, this is a, quite a budget. Uh, go down the highlights for us. It's quite a budget, and it's a lot more than anybody anticipated at the start of this year. The total operating budget for the fiscal year that's going to start in July 1st it's about $9.2 billion, and that's probably one of the largest in state history. And it's about $2 billion more than lawmakers and even the governor anticipated having at the start of the year when they were you know, drafting these budget plans. Hawaii's experienced an incredible economic rebound with the return of tourism, and that means a lot of tax revenue uh, going back into state coffers. And since the state's flush with cash, lawmakers are figuring out lots of different ways to spend it. Uh, the, the one item we highlighted in our story yesterday was about $350 million in cash to go towards building the new stadium uh, over in Halava. But there's a lot of other uh, items out there. There's $94 million to give t- senior teachers a pay raise, $34 million for the Department of Education to cover up uh, um, salaries for hard to fill teaching positions. There's $14 million for this new Mauna Kea management authority that the legislature is debating. And there's 
this big $600 million proposal to fund land uh, or construction projects, I should say, under the Department of Hawaiian Homeland to help them trip into that ever-growing wait list of theirs. Yeah, so uh, where are we at in the process? I mean, so the Senate, I guess, you know, put its stamp of approval when the lawmakers get to vote on this thing. Yeah, so we're pretty far along in the process. The House approved the budget earlier in March. The budget's now going to go to the Senate floor for a vote probably sometime next week. After that, we're going to enter a two-week period that's known as conference committee. And so that's when the Senate uh, and the House you know, point some negotiators, and they huddle together and try to hash out their differences on you know all the bills, including the budget bill. So what, what may come out at the end of session in early May may be different from what we're seeing right now, but the budget is pretty far along at this point. Okay, and they still have some uh, uh, sticky issues that they've got to deal with, right? Minimum wage, you know, those kinds of things that are tied to our economy. There's lots of other fiscal issues for sure, and the biggest hanging over the budget right now is what's called maintenance of effort, or you'll hear them say MOE a lot. And what that is is a federal requirement that basically says that the Department of Education and the University of Hawaii, when all is said and done with the budget and everything is piled, they need to be they need to still get the same proportion of the budget that they did before. So for the DOE, that means they get 26% on the budget. For UH, that means they get about 6%. So basically, if lawmakers are kicking money to other projects or other programs or other agencies, uh, it also means that UH and, and the DOE need to get a share of that. Mm-hmm. Now, how much exactly that is, that's still kind of a big question. And so there's a couple of vehicles still alive in the legislature uh, the senators plan to move forward to give them some options for moving money around in case they need to suddenly kick in, uh, you know, millions or more dollars to uh, either the DOE or the UH. Okay, and then another story that uh, you reported on had to do with the arrest of a uh, uh, a person who does training for the state's Department of Public Safety, uh, and who was arrested. That was kind of a shocker. Yeah, a lot's happening downtown these days. Um, Jay Marty Martinez is a, a public safety training officer. She's in charge of uh, training deputy sheriffs and the state adult corrections officers. Uh, state prosecutors are charged her with two counts of perjury, six counts of tampering with a government record, and six counts of unsworn falsification to authorities. Uh, that's all along with a say that she's accused of lying to state officials about her educational background and her qualifications for her job as the public safety training officer. Right, well, it just raises so many questions. You know, if uh, she didn't have the proper training herself, uh, what does that mean to the, the sheriffs who were trained? Do they have to go through, uh, you know, additional training? So, yeah, uh, lots of questions about that arrest tomorrow. I guess we'll just have to track that and, and see what develops. Yeah, it's still unclear what all this will mean. I tried to ask the department what her status is. They told me that she is employed, but they declined to tell me whether or not she's been placed on leave. And she was the subject of an internal investigation by the DCF, uh, uh, the Public Safety Department, sometime in 2019 after all these revelations started coming to light. Uh, that was closed, and as part of that, that's kind of what led to these criminal charges that were filed this week. Yeah, well, that was uh, uh, it certainly raised eyebrows. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. All right, that was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. To read his stories, head to civilbeat.org. You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, we were invited to pay a visit to the Holy Family Catholic Academy, one of the many schools that rely on the military water system. Celeste Akiu is the administrator of Holy Family. Uh, she shared that the Navy this week came to retest the tap water on their campus located just off Balkenberg. Forty percent of the families who send their children there are with the military. For months, the school couldn't use their tap water because it was contaminated with fuel. The health department recently gave the all clear, but many still aren't comfortable drinking the water. The school is still handing out bottled water provided by the military, and some families are providing their children with water from home. Step on campus and you hear the familiar schoolyard sounds. Children on the playground playing ball and having fun. Music to the ears of educator and administrator Celeste Akiu as we move into a new phase of this pandemic and our water crisis. Are the kids adjusting with no mass outside? 
It's 50-50. I think a lot of them forget that they can't take it off. So you'll see them look around and then think and then say, okay, no, I, it is okay for me to take my mask off. So kind of cute to watch. It's nice to see them out there. <laughs> you know, and this is what reminds us of our why, you know, for them to, and you know, they, they've been like this through all the challenges. They just learn to make the best of it. And I think it reminds us adults to do the same. But it is, their laughter and I remember when the with COVID and they couldn't play with balls and all that, watching them learn new games and they one was um, shadow chase where they would chase each other's shadow if they stepped on it. And I thought all that creativity and they're not complaining, they're just rolling with it and having fun with each other. So But there are the young ones who know nothing but masks for the last two years. Exactly. And that's going to be the huge social emotional learning for them. And it's easy for us to say even when we go outside that it's okay to take it off. Some of them haven't seen their friends. They don't know what their friends look like and to know it's okay. And then even the whole social interactions is foreign to them. Our second graders COVID hit when they were five years old in half a year of kinder. So all they know is masks and sitting in a desk area where you're three to six feet next to someone. So they become these little islands. So we need to help them to slowly adjust to being together and it's okay. And back inside her office, this principal recalled how at the height of the water crisis, she sat across top military brass who paid a visit to the campus. She told him to check the politics outside the door and to think of the children, which is her first priority. Uh, Aki shared her surprise at learning this week that levels of lead were found at the nearby Montessori preschool and wondered if that triggered the retest of their water at the academy this week. Well, my mind is already beginning to race as to wanting to stay ahead of the curveball and thinking that we could take a little break from our contingency plans. But now I have to look at that a lot closer and be ready as we were also tested yesterday. And I will now anxiously await for our results and hope for the best. In a way, you know, you, you can look at this saying, well, had they not tested, we might not have known that, you know, this sink at this preschool had lead. And, you know, lead is not good for young children. Correct. Well, I think there's power in information. The more informed you are, be it good news or not pleasant news, at least being informed helps you to create plans either way or being ready to pivot or adjust to whatever you might need to do. And so talk about what you've had to do during this time, because it's been a trying school year. Absolutely. You know, we started the year with the numbers for COVID high and then coming back from a spike. And then suddenly after Thanksgiving, coming back to find out suddenly no access to running water that just put even more on there. But I think we've realized that you have to just be responsive and you have to look at what can you do? You need to look for what can you do for the good of not just my own school, but our whole community, because it's not just about us here at our school, you always want to see who you need to work with for the good of the children, but also for the staff that works here. And one of your students shared with me that she lives on uh, military housing and they were staying in a hotel in Waikiki and it just added so much more to the day because they had to commute back and forth. And this was for a couple of months. Yes, definitely there were hardships, you know, when a lot of our programs, be it our art program, our science programs, curriculum, we had to make changes, drastic changes. And I think when you're going through that, you realize how precious water is. But having to sacrifice that and then on top of dealing with the COVID was just layer upon layer. However, you also realize you have to just work together to make the best of it. And I think communication was big, being able to find out what the needs were of our military families or others impacted and responding the best we can, be it where 
getting additional uniforms into the hands of families who didn't weren't able to do laundry. Also looking at providing lunches. We had families who had no access to refrigerators to make sandwiches because now our cafeteria was closed. So communicating and talking with each other and checking in was, I feel, a big important key to being able to work through those, as you said, several months of hardship. And yes, for us here at the school, but we had those who, we were able to go home and have water, but there were many of our families were almost 40% military who were impacted one way or another, be it work or their homes, so. Well, what's the situation now? I mean, everybody's got the all clear, they're back in their homes, the businesses are open, the schools are open, but I don't know, a lot of people are still drinking bottled water? Yes, we are. We do use the water for washing of hands. Our cafeteria is still using bottled water where they're able to, but also just being mindful of every morning, is it smell okay? Does it look okay? And doing that throughout the week, we all are. But we're washing hands, that's a big plus. We had very small hallways. We had 15 hand sanitizers, but the kids were, again, the kids are resilient. So are adults, most. <laughs> but kids were resilient in having to pump to be able to wash their hands and they helped each other where you would see one little one pumping as the other one's washing their hands. But that's gone and I think it's a welcome change. However, I don't think we're ever 100% out of this situation. I think we're just not on edge because you have to go on and just bounce with things. But I think just being ready, should we have to go back to other plans, we're ready. And that can sometimes can be pretty heavy to carry, you know, for the little ones and for the families here. I did see on your website you had a, is it the week of the young child and you had a Tasty Tuesdays this week. <laughs> we did, and that was a lot of fun, being able to um, have the ca cafeteria operate at full capacity and having all those little chefs, little three and four year olds, so that was a lot of fun. But even like tomorrow we're gonna have a, um, school-wide lunchtime activity and we're going to have water balloon toss competitions at lunch. That's something we couldn't do because we didn't have access to the water to make the hundred water balloons. So we're looking forward to that. So it's those little things that we may have taken for granted were so simple, but now just are even more special. And we'll enjoy it as long as we can. And of course, with all the social distancing we've had to do and all that, but when you're intentional on trying to make those connections, it makes a difference. So I think that's what makes a special place for kids to come to school. And so if there's one takeaway that you have as an administrator during these many months, what would that be? Boy, my top one would be, actually I'm gonna blend it with two. One would be, open, honest communication with all parties involved that are impacted, even the little ones. Don't take for granted that they have questions too, but also learning to trust each other so that you know you're not in this alone, that if you're gonna do your part, you're gonna trust that your colleagues and families are all gonna work together for the good of the whole, and that involves trusting each other. So with the communication, trusting to be able to work together, you can tackle anything. That was Celeste Akiu, principal of Holy Family Catholic Academy. She says, as of today, the school community is looking forward to graduation and all its trappings for its eighth graders on May 25th. It hopes to soon be able to get the water woes and the pandemic woes behind them. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about new drop-in workshops and spring art classes for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. Act now. That's the punchline of the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. 
Scientists say while we've made strides in reducing the cost of renewables, we're well behind where we need to be in our transition off fossil fuels. To help us tackle these issues, Chaminade University has partnered with the United Nations to open what's called a new Seafall Regional Training Center in Honolulu. It'll offer education and programs related to UN Sustainable Development Goals, including climate action. And they're kicking off a lecture series next week featuring local leaders in sustainability. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote wanted to know how all this talk will get us closer to our climate goals. She spoke with Gail Grabowski, Dean of Chaminade School of Natural Sciences and Mathematics, and Chaminade student and Hokulea student navigator Lucy Lee this morning. Here's Grabowski. So when the Seafall Center came into being officially, which was in the fall, we decided that we'd love to have a launch to announce what the heck is a Seafall Center. So the Seafall Center is part of the United Nations, and it's a local training center to try to achieve what the United Nations calls the Sustainable Development Goals, which basically cover everybody's career from business to justice to the environment to climate change, et cetera. And so we decided let's have a launch and bring in people that kind of represent all the diverse issues that the United Nations tries to tackle and that the Seafall Center tries to help make happen. And so we have some diverse speakers and a panel on climate change coming in. And Gail, you have a wide swath of subject matter that the Seafall Center is trying to address or trying to create resources for. What do you think is the advantage of trying to touch as many topics as possible rather than just narrowing in on one issue? Yeah, that's a great question, and we've wrestled with that in the beginning. So the thing that we really need to focus on is what is most important and pressing in our area. There are 22 Seafall Centers in the world, and we are the only one in the Pacific. So we know what are the issues in Hawaii, but we also want to reach out and determine, find out from the people throughout the Pacific, what are your major issues? And certainly one of them is climate change. Also, coral reef health, also life on land, but then also there's the human health and well-being. And then finally, as we know from Red Hill, there's also clean water and sanitation. Now, there's 17 goals, but those are probably some of the five we'll focus on most. Hmm. Do you think that stronger ties and partnerships between Hawaii itself and other Pacific nations are going to be important in tackling these problems that you've mentioned? Oh, sure, because some of them have wonderful answers, as do, I'd say here, the um, community-managed fishing areas, how to manage their resources. So we will offer some expertise, and then we will get some expertise. And it can be things, too. And how do you grow food when climate is changing? What are people discovering that works if there's sea level rise? How do you manage your resources in a way that's culturally significant to the people in their place and also shareable. And and Lucy, to you, you are participating in one of these discussions coming up next Tuesday. What about this project was inspiring to you? There are a lot of inspiring aspects to communities being able to come together. I think that's the main thing that I see in this project and with a lot of the work that the United Nations does is it brings people together and it allows and facilitates conversations that otherwise are had in really difficult ways. And I think this gives a platform and an opportunity for these conversations to be had in more level-headed ways and ways where there are goals. Um, You're not just coming to the table to have a conversation for the sake of having a conversation. You all have this invested interest in the betterment and in solutions. And I think that often we can get lost in just talking to talk and having conversations to have conversations to say, hey, look, I talked to this person, I did it, and that's done, and then not moving forward from that. And so I think with the presence of goals, these conversations have a lot more meaning, and that was really exciting for me. And you're a student at Chaminade as well as a Hokulea student navigator. In the discussions that have already been had or the, the groups that have come forward to combat these issues such as climate change, access to clean water, overall ecosystem health, do you feel like a younger perspective, the perspective of your generation, has been included or has been lost? Yeah, I think when we talk about the voices of the younger generation, I think what I find interesting is that it's not necessarily even our own voice. I think what the younger generation is doing is looking back to the wisdom of our ancestors. Um, It's relearning the things that we had lost. It's, you know, looking at things that have worked and finding ways to make that 
a 21st century type of thing because I think that there is a lot of ingenious in the way that our ancestors handled things and in their solutions and in their systems. And I think that there are definitely like new technologies and new ideas that are helping. But I think that sometimes the old ways still work. What's behind us is what's in front of us. And that is what our generation has to offer. And that's what I've seen thus far. Mm. In partnership with the Seafall Center, Chaminade University has created a kind of structure in which we can address these issues and collect resources. But I do want to know, Lucy, what kind of conversations are your peers at Chaminade or your peers in the community here having on the day-to-day about these issues? How do they feel? I think especially, you know, studying environmental issues, there is this sense of overwhelmingness and, you know, kind of darkness that can eat up at you and can get to you. But then what holds us all together is this idea that we're all going through it together. We're all, you know, weeding out the bad things, kind of trying to just push on in our own respective areas. And I think, you know, it's really awesome, especially that I found my niche personally in the sailing community and this vol community, because when I went up to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands this past summer um, on my first navigation run, I was surrounded by four of my closest friends and we were doing it together and in that like we were so grateful that there were five of us but at the same time we were also recognizing you know there are hundreds of thousands of kids of others who will never have this opportunity and so how can we bridge that and how can we connect what we're doing how can we connect our work to the work of others and I think that you know again as I mentioned like it's very inspiring to see people who aren't necessarily doing the same thing as me, but who do feel the same way as me and being able to facilitate those conversations and connect ourselves in that way. I think that that's what this project is all about. And Gail, as an educator, as someone who creates these opportunities for young people, what responsibility do you feel? I mean, this is a hopeful project, (laughs) but in general, how do you feel about Hawaii and its chance and opportunity to combat these issues? Uh, I think Hawaii is one of the best places on the planet to address these issues and to come up with solutions, partly because we're an island and because island people figured out how to live already very sustainably in places that are hard to live on. Islands are not easy to live on. People may think of them as paradise, but there's not a lot of big animals walking around to hunt naturally. So they have a mindset and a value set that I think is super essential. A lot of times when you look at environmental issues, if you look down at what's really at the base, it's it's your mindset, it's your way of viewing the world and your place in nature. And when Lucy was talking about looking to the past, people in the past all over the planet, but especially on islands, knew that sustainability, they didn't use that word maybe necessarily, but they knew that they had to work with nature in harmony to be happy, to be successful, to be productive. There are some aspects of sustainability that feel inaccessible to people in terms of, for instance, driving in an electric car. What about this idea of sustainability as it relates to the history of Hawaii might be more accessible to people? Maybe I'm going a little off with my response in this, but I think it really comes down to what do you define as sustainability? What does sustainability mean to you? I think especially with, you know, pop culture, Western media, all of these things, sustainability has become this kind of abstract idea. And it's all of these like actions and all of these items that we think and we subscribe to this idea of sustainability. And I think at the root of it, sustainability is not, you know, driving an electric car or going vegetarian or, you know, like these are all personal choices that you're making. But I think sustainability is the innate desire and the ability to take care of each other and to take care of your things and to take care of yourself. And so I think that that is accessible to everyone. Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate this conversation and looking forward to the lecture series. Thank you, Savannah. Thank you so much for having us. That was Gail Grabowski, Dean of Chaminade School of Natural Sciences and Mathematics and Chaminade student and Hokulea student navigator Lucy Lee. They spoke with the conversation, Savannah Harriman-Pope. In 
this morning's Backyard Quiz, we took a look at Hawaii's oldest and largest Chinese language school. Opened in 1911, the school's mission was to promote education among Chinese immigrants and in the community and to perpetuate Chinese language, culture, and heritage. It has graduated thousands of students in those years, including our first Asian Senator, Hiram Fong. During the pandemic, the school took the opportunity to upgrade its facilities and infrastructure. It's also added more innovative activities like coding classes and cultural offerings like Chinese painting and piano classes. The name of this award-winning school, the Mun Lun School of downtown Honolulu, the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congratulations to our winner, Raymond Wong from Manoa. Uh, he shares that his older brother and his two sisters went to Mun Lun. Very popular quiz today. Lots of people know that school. If you have an idea for a backyard quiz, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with artworks and home furnishings that reflect the life and colors of the islands. Featuring Annie Sloan chalk paint, shipping available. Magnolia-Hawaii.com. A new book forces us to see reality TV as a mirror held up to society and why we should take it more seriously. There was one study that showed that heavy consumers of reality TV are more likely to drink alcohol. They're also more likely to go hot tubbing on dates. More on True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us by author Danielle Lindemann. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Namea Hawaii and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. The Hawaii International Film Festival Spring Showcase kicked off this week, and among the films being screened is a documentary by Crystal Kwok, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. It's called Blurring the Color Line, and it addresses the race relations between the Chinese and African-American communities in the Jim Crow South. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with Kwok to discuss the project. You say on your website that your documentary serves to disrupt racial narratives and bridge divides. I think when you look back on the narrative that's told about the Jim Crow South, it's almost always about segregation between white and black. But it seems like your film is saying that's not the whole story. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing. You know, we receive our knowledge based on history that's produced by people who keep things in binaries. And I never really realized this before because I never really thought to dig into my grandmother's past. That kind of is my entrance into the story to reveal this whole flourishing community of uh, these Chinese in the South, which I knew were there. But to really know is a different story altogether. Right. And what you know, what prompted you to be interested in diving into your grandmother's life in the South and following that? So I was very close to my grandmother growing up and she grew up in San Francisco because she ran away from her home in Augusta, Georgia, which is kind of like the spark of my story interest. And I used to remember always asking her, you know, so where where did you sit on the bus? And I remember her telling me in her southern drawl, and I can't imitate it, but she would say hypothetically she would be in front of the blacks and behind the whites, so to speak. So there, that's the blurring, right? It's like, it's not, it's not fixed because in the Jim Crow South, even if you were not white or black specifically, basically it depended on how many people, like if there was enough, if there were too many white passengers, then, you know, the, the, the border of where black people or people of color were to sit would be pushed back. So that was even a moving space. So we don't really realize this. And also these, you mentioned these fixed, very kind of distinct black and white spaces, for example, the the water fountain, right? The, (laughs) the iconic black and white water fountain. So where did the Asians, which one did they use? And I was curious these questions because we didn't fit in and they didn't know what to do with Asians. They kind of swept us under like this quiet little, and I hate that term model minority. It's so problematic. But that's what kind of created that image for for Asians, right? We kind of right. tucked away. Yeah. I know the story of Asians coming to Hawaii is a well-known story. Did Asians immigrate to the American South to work on plantations down there? 
No. So, okay. So the interesting thing is um, most of the Chinese community in the South came, a lot of them from San Francisco, because that was the port of entry for the new immigrants from China. Right. But they did move to the South earlier because they needed labor. They were building canals in Augusta, Georgia, and they brought the Chinese laborers in. But to speak to the plantations. So this is where it's interesting. When the kind of plantation system died out, they had these commissaries for the African-Americans mm-hmm. that the white people owned, they, these little kind of general stores to sell supplies to them. And after the plantation life died out, the white people basically didn't want to do any business with the black people anymore. So that's where a lot of the Chinese who were kind of around that area thought, hey, maybe this is a business opportunity. And so they started opening up grocery stores in the black neighborhoods of that kind of post-plantation era in the entering the Jim Crow South. And so what I had learned is that Augusta was a very specific place that had a flourishing Chinese population because they owned stores all over the town. Like at one point, I say it in my documentary, there are like over 50 stores in that small town, like almost every block had a Chinese grocery store. So it was a very interesting setup. I assume you made a trip down there to film. Did you find that some of those stores are still around? So unfortunately, there were there was only one left and I filmed mostly there and it's run by a Korean couple now. You know, it's kind of yeah. like the narrative kind of repeats itself. <laughs> in your in your research and as you were working on your film and learning new things, what's the most surprising thing that you learned about Black Chinese relations during segregation? I would say it's twofold. So on one hand, I found some very beautiful moments where they shared. We realized that we had such a shared history, you know, and talking about foods, memories around the stores, they all remembered the same things, which was really, really quite um, lovely. But at the same time, there are these moments that made me realize, ah, this is what speaks to today's Afro-Asian tensions. It's our past. It's that it's the white supremacist structure that created this tension that pit us against each other because we were like the, you know, well, we were allowed to go to white schools, but we still lived in a black neighborhood. And so there's this animosity and there's this kind of like strange uh, tension there. Um, and, and more surprisingly, which I say in the film, and I don't really want to give it away, but in my journey in, in research, I discovered I also had a, a mixed race uh, Chinese and black cousin that wow. nobody talked about which is crazy. And that says everything about the silencing of these so-called embarrassing things that families keep to themselves. When I think about the generations that have passed since since the, the time of segregation in the South, I'm a little curious as to why some of these stories didn't come out sooner. Why, why do you think stories like this were overlooked in the past? You know, I think a big part of it is you know, I'm going to speak for myself because I don't think everybody may agree with me, but I'm convinced that the the Chinese patriarchal structure was a big part of how history is told. First of all, I have a strong woman slant because I feel like women's voices have historically been, you know, erased or silenced. And that's not just in the Chinese community. It's like, you know, all over the world. But to speak specifically to the Chinese community is that this whole kind of Confucian idea that women should be quiet and obedient. And then we they're raised to be, you know, good wives and good daughters um, plays into this history because um, their stories were never heard. And and this is my grandmother. There is a whole group of sisters that grew up, these siblings in that store. And so this is revealing the history from the woman's perspective that was never told or never heard before. And in fact, when I was doing my uh, research, I went there and I did a little mini presentation to the Chinese community of Augusta, Georgia. And what struck me was one of the older Chinese gentlemen in the audience actually was quite strongly kind of opinionatedly (laughs) critiquing my work saying, what, you know, you've got this all wrong. You, you should be talking about the Chinese success stories. That's what it's for. It's, oh, so so wow. the whole idea and mentality of uh, is to raise all the good things and keep all the bare, embarrassing things under the carpet, right? Seems to be something that that is also very, very strong here, right? We don't want to, we want to save face. We, wanna, we don't want to make shame in front of other people. Exactly. Uh, wow, yeah, very interesting. You're a PhD candidate in performance studies at UH Manoa. You say that as part of your dissertation, you examine the way documentary and ideas of racism, quote, perform, unquote. What did you mean by that? 
So performance studies is a really interesting kind of way of looking at things. You know, it's similar to cultural studies, feminist studies, and it's kind of looking at things from a different angle. And in terms of the performativity of it, you look at the Jim Crow era. You know, my story centers around this grocery store set in the heart of the Black neighborhood. For me, it's actually very theatrical. It's like a stage set where the store is the main set. And then you have people, these encounters that happen inside the store, these encounters between the Black customers and the Chinese store owners. And then there's that kind of the the front where people are addressing each other behind the counter and in front of the store. And then there's the back where it's kind of like the dressing room of behind the stage off, offset mm-hmm. kind of idea of where you can take off your mask and, and be yourself and you can talk bad about somebody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there are these kind of analogies I find are really fascinating to understand more deeply how the racial structure works. So if I look at Jim Crow as a stage, the Jim Crow stage, who's playing, who are the main players? I purposely focused on the Chinese and the black communities and kind of consciously kind of sidelining the the white community so that I could kind of bring forth this important untold story. I could see how that would be an untold part of the story that's very important to the overall narrative. It's kind of like reframing history. When leaders and communities talk about race relations, they often talk about opening a dialogue and having conversations. And you say your film opens up critical conversations about our racial history, which is crucial in moving forward to create social change. What do these conversations need to be about in order to bring about that change? It's the uncomfortable conversations in addressing and acknowledging that there is a deeply rooted anti-Black racism that a lot of Asian cultures were brought up with, including myself. You know, I grew up with my parents and grandparents using certain words that may be derogatory, but maybe it was just a term to, you know, speak of Black people. And I wanted to question why, why do we have these things? And this is a very intergenerational conversation because I believe that the younger generation is much more open in terms of understanding what racism is. So I think it's these uncomfortable conversations of addressing these kind of innate discriminations that we don't really realize because we can't move forward. This Afro-Asian tensions or the tensions between all different types of communities is never going to change unless we recognize what we have to work with on our own side first. And I also think that the uncomfortable conversation comes with bringing the two communities together in a physical space so that we can listen to each other and learn each other's histories. That was Hawaii filmmaker Crystal Kwok talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about her film, Blurring the Color Line. It screens Tuesday, April 12th, as part of uh, HIF's Spring Showcase. For links to more, check uh, the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. And that is it for this Aloha Friday. I am taking a few days off next week, but Bill Dorman and Scott Kim will be sitting in. And as a reminder, you can listen back to our shows. We'll archive them. Uh, Check the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program is put together by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. The Becker quiz theme written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.